Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this discussion that we're going to have this afternoon on the subject of the big society. I'm Nicholas Deakin, a formerly research fellow in this uh, organisation, and um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we're going to organise the proceedings. Um, we are going to start with presentations, and we've got five speakers on the platform, so we have urged them to be brief and concise in their presentations, because we're very anxious that there should be an interval for questions and discussions on this subject. And we intend to wind up proceedings by 7.45. I'm conscious that another event elsewhere is starting at 7.45, and I won't detain you beyond that time, I guarantee let me just very briefly introduce the speakers to you. Simon Serrater, on my far right there, is Fellow of St John's College, Cambridge, holds the Chair of History and Public Policy at the University, and is a Managing Editor of History and Policy. Next to him is Armini Ashkanian, who is a lecturer in NGOs and Development at the London School of Economics here, and has expertise in civil society, democratisation and gender. Then immediately on my right is Pfizer Chaudhry, who is the Deputy Chief Executive and Director of Policy in the National Council for Voluntary Youth Services. Then on my left here is Ralph Michel, who is the Director of Policy for ASEVO, the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations, and leads their work engaging with policymakers in Whitehall and Westminster. And on my far left is David Lewis, who is Professor of Social Policy and Development here at the school. The event is being recorded, I understand, and it's hoped that a podcast will be available online. I am to advise you to put your mobile phones on silent to avoid disrupting the event, but we do have a Twitter hashtag for the event, and it's hash LSE Big Society, all one word, one word. And finally, for my introductions, I want to pass to the specific and ask Simon to kick off proceedings for you. Thanks very much, Nick. It's a great pleasure to be here um, in this historic theatre uh, to uh, engage in a presentation about a, an important new book uh, that puts historians and people who are specialists in social policy and workers in the third sector together. Um, it's my brief to tell you a little bit about this book as it's brand new and we can't assume that you will have necessarily um, read it as yet, although I'm sure you will be queuing up to do so afterwards. Um, big society is the current government's big idea, as the Prime Minister David Cameron repeatedly stated. It's claimed to be a solution to our broken society, in his words. A new direction in the provision of social welfare which will liberate society from big government and release the dynamic energies of volunteers and local communities. The, it, the two groups of academics whose expertise are brought together are those, I think, most directly uh, affected by this agenda. Uh, social policy uh, experts and people working in the, in the his, on the history of British society. And this book offers a balanced uh, contribution from both these disciplines and an opportunity also to hear firsthand from a number of those engaged in the third sector, which it is the professed aim of big society to en enhance. In part one of the book, where the history, history contributions are put together, Jose Harris's opening chapter surveys the transatlantic intellectual history of the idea of big society, tracing it back 
to the 18th century and Adam Smith's notion of a great society. As always with Adam Smith, the idea had a Janus-faced ambiguity from the start. Smith envisaged that a great society could emerge either from the careful and benevolent plans of a technocratic elite, such as the Fabians, who of course founded this very august institution, or from allowing the free play of private individuals' goals and desires, but only, according to Smith, provided that such individuals could be relied on to exhibit both self-restraint and a sense of justice towards their fellow beings, which would then result in them exercising, another quote from him, voluntary benevolence. How to ensure that a liberal free market economy breeds a society of such benevolent, not merely self-serving individuals, or conversely, how to ensure that a state intent on promoting benevolent general outcomes does not trample on individual freedom and personal initiative remain mirror image problems of modern statecraft in liberal democracies. In chapters two and three, myself and then uh, Laurie Charlesworth each focus on historic institutions which appear to have come reasonably close to finessing this Smithian conundrum for protracted periods in the past. <clears throat> Britain became a dynamic market economy during the course of the 17th and 18th centuries, while simultaneously providing its populace with a lot rather less well-known, universal but highly devolved social security system, the Elizabethan Poor Law, dating from 1601. This was so effective that it afforded the population a unique level of protection from famine mortality for 150 years earlier than the rest of Europe. It was the unavoidable personal right to community support of every individual subject, the unavoidable fiscal obligation of the rich to contribute to the poor law, along with clear lines of legal accountability enforced by local magistrates, the JPs, which the 1601 Act imposed on every parish community of 5,000 persons, and this was crucial to its effective functioning. Complementing this system of vigorous and accountable local government, in Chapter 7, Richard Fries, who was the Chief Charity Commissioner uh, in the late 90s, points out that all charity law dates from a founding Elizabethan statute, also of 1601. This set out how the nation's elite might simultaneously choose to support the poor voluntarily by, for instance, founding schools for poor scholars, building almshouses for the elderly and the ill, or funding apprenticeships for orphans. To the extent they were effectively, these were effective in alleviating the plight of the poor, these charitable acts would, in the long run, also defray the costs of the poor law on the elite class while simultaneously winning them and their heirs kudos and gratitude in the local community. Hence, the Elizabethan state had ingeniously created in 1601 an incentive structure which, while imposing unavoidable benevolence through the tax-funded parish poor law, simultaneously encouraged personal voluntary initiative through its accompanying charity statute. Vigorous, accountable local government, fully fiscally supported by the wealthy, was key to unlocking voluntary initiative. Are the wealthy today truly obligated to pay their fair share, either to the Commonwealth or to their local communities, or is it too easy for them to avoid or evade? Whereas by the end of Elizabeth I's reign, the wealthy found that devoting themselves to devising schemes for the effective relief of the poor was also in their own financial self-interest, 
four, four, four centuries later, towards the end of Elizabeth II's reign, the wealthy devote themselves to the absorbing game of minim minimising their council and national tax obligations, with charitable giving seen as a minor part of that larger wealth management strategy. Can big society community flourish? Can big society community volunteering flourish when the incentive structure for the elite to truly engage is so weak compared to that created several hundred years ago? In Chapter 4, Daniel Weinbrenn's focus on the interwar mutual insurance societies provides a salutary case study of what disastrously happens when central government compulsorily co-opts and then directs from the Treasury a previously vigorous, well-funded and widespread third sector independent organisation to do its bidding in service delivery in times of economic hardship. This historical case study justifies the concerns expressed by Rachel McGill of NCIA that since big society rhetoric today is accompanied in fact by severe cuts to public services, that this may result in large corporate charity, charities and private sector organisations taking over community services, not local volunteers, with a consequent shrinking of the space for voluntary and convivial activities, as happened to the friendly societies. Confirming this potential for disconnect between new developments generated by government policy and local communities, Kate Bradley's Chapter 5 finds that the relatively lavishly funded big society major new top-down initiative, the National Citizen Service, rather than engaging constructively with the century-old youth services, is expanding at their expense while long-established and cherished local youth clubs, including in the Prime Minister's own constituency, are facing terminal cuts. It's a supporting premise of big society policy initiatives that Britain is suffering from a broken society, meaning an overall decline in voluntary activity and civic engagement. Now this is an eminently testable historical proposition, and in reporting on his team's major research project in Chapter 6, Matthew Hilton finds this to be highly misleading. The number of charities registered in Britain has in fact more or less doubled to 180,000 during the last four decades while surveys of volunteering also record a trend rise over the same period. Hilton acknowledges a change in patterns of voluntary activity, which he says primarily reflects declining trust in elected government and a preference to trust finance and support, often virtually, a widening range of increasingly professionalised non-profit NGOs. The implication is that where Mr Cameron sees a broken society required, requiring his leadership, the electorate sees a broken governing system and corrupted political class and seeks an alternative means of public engagement through supporting NGOs which pursue their own political ideals. Jane Holgate and John Page describe a specific aspect of this wider development also happening on the ground in a community in their account of the recent campaigning initiative of Hackney Unites occurring just a mile or so east of here. The successive chapters of part one build up a picture of what big society can be, how its aspirations for local civic engagement have been widely achieved for long periods in the past in this country, and how a politically engaged version of citizen association continues to expand in the present, sometimes in response to community challenges, as in Hackney, and sometimes as more virtual networks of concerned citizens. However, neither of these is what David Cameron has in mind when he talks of big society. 
nor does he appear to be giving any serious attention to designing the incentive structures that history shows can tie the elites back into genuine commitment and engagement with the poor and their problems in the communities and regions of Britain. So what is Mr Cameron's big society? In the first chapter of part two, Martin Albrow argues that whatever else it may be, Big society is first and foremost a political rhetorical intervention whose value to David Cameron is primarily communicative, fun functioning analogously to a slogan for a commercial brand. Albro's analysis connects with Hilton's interpretation of recent history in seeing the widening trust gap between Westminster and the voting citizens as a key political development. When allied to the necess necessity politicians find themselves in of searching for votes through the mass media, this produces an urgency to define a slogan that both elicits a response of familiarity and trust with the voters while remaining resilient, or at least opaque, to the critiques of the intellectual class. However, as Albrow acknowledges, there are also policies that accompany the rhetoric and their, and their viability are addressed in other chapters in Part 2. In Chapter 9, Cathy Farrow asks an important basic question. What of the funding of big society? What is there behind the buzzwords of philanthrocapitalism, venture philanthropy, and the new devices of social impact bonds, the Pathfinders Initiative, and most recently, Big Society Capital, BSC? While it is certain that significant cuts to public services have been implemented in pursuit of austerity, it is too early to tell whether any of these financial initiatives have yet had the effect expressed as an aspiration by the Secretary of State for Culture, Jeremy Hunt, to turn philanthropy into a tap of funding, with the implicit recognition that compared to the USA and compared to public funding, philanthropy remains a mere trickle as yet in the UK. Thus, the flagship initiative, BSC, is capitalised at about £600 million, but let's not forget the annual expenditure of local authorities just on social protection and health alone is £38 billion. The same minister subsequently found it necessary to publicly refute the notion that philanthropic giving might in any way substitute for provision of public services. Indeed, when the financial numbers are examined, the impossibility of such a notion for all its attraction to ideologists on the right becomes obvious. The conclusion follows that big society may in fact be an irrelevance or perhaps rather a diversion where matters of provision of essential public services are concerned. Philanthropy can't and won't fill in the gaps left by funding cuts and that means that the poorest communities will inevitably pay the highest price of the public cuts. Indeed, to exa indeed examining the private foundations in the USA Diana Leet, in her chapter, only reinforces this message. As she pithily puts it, quote from her chapter, philanthropy does what it wants to do. Philanthropy does not do equity. Philanthropy is not democratic. Foundations are fiercely independent and resist doing the bidding of central government. In the land of the free, which appears to be the utopia of big society with its culture of charitable giving, there has consequently been rather little impact on the improvement of services for the poor. Indeed, welfare is notoriously a pejorative term in this most unequal of modern societies. I turn finally to the two final chapters of part two by Marcus Ketteler and Armini Ishkanian.
They add further important international comparative social policy, uh, social policy perspectives to that of Diana Leitz on USA. In Chapter 13, Ketteler shows that comparatively across Western Europe, several diverse welfare regimes, in fact Sweden, the high-taxing big state, the bogeyman, has also consistently been the big society with the highest measurable levels of participatory volunteering amongst its citizens. This is a direct empirical contradiction of the untested policy propositions of big society proponents, which should cause all uh, all, um, some pause for thought. In Chapter 14, Armini Ishkanian points out that while the rhetoric of big society emphasises non-governmental activism only as empowering, it steadfastly ignores much more large, much large-scale recent evidence. The neoliberal shock therapy applied to the many former Soviet countries of Eastern Europe and Western continental Asia, as well as the structural adjustment policies applied in the Southern Hemisphere during the same decades, were proposed as substitutes for civic society in place of curtailed public services, but with catastrophic consequences for the poor, unemployed, elderly, children, and most especially for women the world's residual carers when public funded services disappear and also, as she points out, the principal victims of domestic violence. This book's chapters collectively show that the volunteering of big society can't be turned on like a tap, though unfortunately government, governments pursuing an ideology can attempt to turn, it off, turn off public services like a tap. As David Lewis concludes in his, conclu- in his closing contribution, If, under big society rhetoric, markets are brought further into social provision in an era of cuts, this may counterproductively damage, not enhance, the capacity of the voluntary sector. History and comparative evidence indicates that volunteering and public services are not substitutes for each other. They are more correctly seen as complements, doing very different things. So to conclude, to achieve the Smithian balance of benevolence and freedom is a high art of government in liberal democracies. But in Adam Smith's terms, the contributors to this book find that in Britain today, the government is failing to do what is within its proper powers to achieve. That is to create the right incentive structure to breed truly benevolent individuals from the top of our society downwards. Big society is a feeble and inaccurate diagnosis of this problem and a rhetorical slogan, not a true statesmanlike solution. Government needs to address the crucial issue of the fiscal and legal infrastructure of incentives to tie in the energy of both volunteers and wealthy philanthropists in partnership with accountable public services and energised local government. Thank you, Simon. And we'll go on now to Ralph. Thank you. The, um, The difficulty I always have when talking about big society is that it's very difficult to talk about something until you're clear what it is that you're talking about. And uh, defining big society is a bit like pinning jelly to a wall. Some people see it simply as a cover for cuts. Some people see it as brand decontamination for the Conservative Party, little more than a slogan similar to uh, being pictured with huskies or talking about hugging hoodies. It's a way of getting away from being called the nasty party. Others see it as an ideology or a programme for government, but even then there's disagreement as to what the content of that ideology is and whether it's a good thing or not. I think 
probably we ought to accept that it's all of the above, and that's part of the attraction to it and part of the difficulties that it has. What I want to talk about primarily is the ideological content, the policy content of it. And I think at heart what big society in policy terms is about is achieving a shift of power and a shift of responsibility in our society so that people and communities have more power to solve problems themselves and so that we all, individuals, companies, collectively, have act with greater responsibility for ourselves and for one another. Fundamentally, I think if you look at what people like David Cameron talk about when they're talking about big society, it is those two shifts at heart, shifts of power and shifts of responsibility. So it is not just, and I want to be clear in all that I'm talking about, I do not see this as primarily about volunteering or getting volunteers to do what the state used to do or getting people to give more to charity, even though I do think those are examples of people taking more responsibility for um, themselves and others around them. I, I think they're examples, but that is, not, that is not per se what this ideology is about. Act, and actually, if, if you think that's what it is, there's significant consensus across the political spectrum about those two shifts. Um, both on the left and right, uh, people would sign up to the idea that we ought to be giving people more power over their own lives, local communities more power over what happens locally, and would sign up to the idea that um, people and we might agree on, disagree on who, but people ought to be taking more responsibility for others around them or for themselves. And I think the, the, these ideas have an attraction partly in themselves because people think it would be a good thing for us to have more power over our lives and for us to take more responsibility, but they're also, um, they also reflect the nature of some of the public policy challenges that we face today, which... I think, again, across the political spectrum, a lot of people would agree the state on its own cannot solve problems like um, the obesity um, epidemic or global warming, problems that require individuals and communities to act themselves rather than it being simply about government. That is not to say that there is no role for the state. It is to say that we should be concerned with getting other parties, individuals, private companies, voluntary groups, to play their role. I'll come back to the role of the state. But fundamentally, I think there is something positive in this agenda. Um, so I now want to just talk about three of the um, problems that the government has faced and continues to face in implementing these, these two shifts. Those problems, as I see them, are um, inequality, um, the role of the state and the role of the voluntary and private sectors. Starting with inequality, it is fairly clear that achieving these shifts in power and responsibility will be harder in some communities than in others. Just to take a few examples, taking volunteering simply as an example here 
of social or civic responsibility. People with a degree are twice as likely to volunteer as people with no qualifications. There is in this country what, what academics call a civic core. 30% um, of the population who provide 90% of volunteer hours and 80% of charitable giving. And that civic core, that group of people, is disproportionately better off, disproportionately religious, and disproportionately well-educated. It, it's actually not simply um, a question of being poor or rich that, that um, correlates with whether people are likely to volunteer or or give money, but very clearly some communities will do more of this than others. Now for me, that is not a reason not to pursue these shifts in power and responsibility. I, I still would pursue them, but it is a fact that the government needs to answer to. It, need, it is a fact that the government needs to have a strategy for addressing. And at the moment, I don't think the government has an answer to it. It has small individual policies. It has answers it can give when asked, but I, I think it would be an overstatement to say that it has a strategy for dealing with what is a fundamental problem. And that is something that, in our polling, 83% of charity chief execs and 59% of the public agree with. They think big society, as it stands, will work less well for more deprived areas. Second issue um, relates to the role of the state. And if you want to achieve a shift in power and responsibility, sometimes the state will be a barrier. For instance, in the way it regulates volunteering, many of our members um, have argued that CRB checks, for instance, sometimes get in the way of um, people wanting to volunteer. But sometimes it will be enabler. Um, sometimes without the state, people cannot act People do not have power on their, over their own lives and cannot take responsibility for themselves or others around them. Sometimes the state is an enabler. It is not always a problem for achieving these shifts. Um, as, as I think has already been mentioned, there is, there is very little evidence that the state crowds out voluntary or civic action. What you need is the right kind of state, the right kind of state action. And that is actually something that David Cameron has himself recognised and he talked about the need for a thoughtful reimagination of the role of the state. The reimagined state should not stop at creating opportunities for people to take control of their lives. It must actively help people take advantage of this new freedom. This means a new role for the state actively helping to create the big society, directly agitating for, catalyzing and galvanizing social renewal. I would agree with that. I would say that the government has not put the flesh on the bones of that idea. It's a difficult, difficult question to think through how the state would go about this. And we know when the state does try to encourage giving or volunteering, for instance, that it's actually quite difficult. But I don't think the government could claim to have really thought through or put into practice what this reimagined state looks like. Moving on to um, the role of the voluntary and private sectors, my um, third, third point about implementation. Um, as I said, I do not equate the third sector or the charitable sector with the big society, and I don't see the big society agenda as being about 
um, growing the charitable sector or having more people volunteer um, or give money to, uh, to charities. But, but clearly the third sector is going to be a crucial vehicle for achieving these shifts in, in power and responsibility. And if you think um, of examples, uh, there are charities who, um, who enable, for instance, uh, disabled people to um, play a part in the community that they just wouldn't be able to without the help of those voluntary organisations. Or if you want examples of voluntary organisations being the vehicle that enable people to come together and take responsibility for the world around them. There are countless examples over hundreds of years from um, the movement to abolish slavery um, through today to more modern examples like the movement to uh, make poverty history. Um, and we're blessed in this country with um, what is by international standards uh, an incredibly vibrant voluntary sector with um, hundreds of thousands of organisations, one of the highest levels of giving, um, a third of people volunteering at least once a month, um, the, probably the highest level of um, membership of, of voluntary organisations in the world. And uh, this government, I think, almost certainly will preside over a shrinking of the voluntary sector rather than a growing of it. And that is a problem. Similarly, I think if you're looking at vehicles for making these shifts in power and responsibility happen, the private sector has a huge role to play, both itself in taking responsibility for the world around it and in helping um, others to, employees and so on. And I think the government has made noises in that direction but um, not really done enough to realise the potential. So to sum up, I would see the content at heart of the Big Society agenda as actually a good thing and... and um, there being ideas in there that have support across the political spectrum, but the implementation to date has been sadly lacking. Right, so over to you. Thank you, Nick. Good evening, everyone. Delighted to be here, and thank you um, for the invitation. So, in, I was reflecting on where we were in 2010, when actually it felt like you couldn't get away from the words big society. Every meeting I went to, every conference I went to, most articles I read, it was everywhere. And actually, in the last year, it's become a bit like a dirty phrase. The same civil servants that I speak to who were previously big society champions just don't talk about it anymore. Now, you can make of that what you will, but it does show a shift in where we are in terms of what the big society means if it's the foundation of the current coalition government's agenda for public service delivery. Um, now, why is that? I, mean, I was thinking um, in preparing for today, why, what's happened in the last year? Um, if I'm honest, I wouldn't argue with the core principles of what I see the big society to be, and I think everyone has their own interpretation, Ralph, as you say. Um, there's no definition for it. It's a concept. Um, and at its core, I see the big society as being about a kind and caring society, and I can't argue with that, actually. Um, I sort of, there's nothing wrong with that. It's also about, in my view, helping yourself, and creating the conditions for communities to help others who perhaps can't help themselves so easily. But it comes at a time when perhaps it's a good idea 
at the wrong time. Um, at the moment, the focus is on deficit reduction. And there's a philosophy of localism and decentralization that seems to cut across absolutely everything um, government is doing at the moment. If you ask for decisions and um, a bit of guidance nationally to help you along in how services are delivered locally, it's not very forthcoming at all. Um, the answer you get is actually it's down to local determination and it's down to um, you know, local decision making. It's all about localism. Absolutely right that communities should determine how their services are delivered. But it becomes a bit more difficult when you're working in areas where perhaps your citizens aren't so empowered with information, don't understand how public service decisions are made, don't understand local strategic arrangements, and actually a whole lot, most of our members at NICVIS work with um, young people who perhaps don't have the support systems around them to navigate those local um, decision-making structures. And that's where it starts to get a bit difficult for us. So what it means is a radical shift in the way public services are being delivered. Um, in terms of kind of what that means, NICVIS has been around since the 1930s. Um, and this isn't a plug, although I've just got it in there. We were formed by a number of charities, some of the oldest charities in the country, so the guys, um, the scouts, um, YMCA, who got together because they wanted a national voice to government. We still do that today. So back in the 30s, that was happening. Big society was happening. Um, and that's where I think a lot of charities struggle with this. They see themselves doing this anyway. And they wonder, actually, what's different? And then they see some of the decision-making and the funding decisions that are going on, and that becomes quite difficult. Whenever I do these um, talks on the big society, I haven't done a whole raft, but I've done a few, I always like to ask the audience, actually, what you think. Um, because the three that come up for me, I'll give you some options. Do you think the big society is A, um, political cover for spending cuts, B, an opportunity for the charitable sector, or C, an opportunity for citizens to recast their relationship with the state? I'd really like your views. So A, can I have hands up for those out of those three who think it's a cover for spending cuts? <laughs> OK, that's not as many as actually when I last asked this question a year ago. So okay. <laughs> some progress for the government there, perhaps. B, opportunity for the charitable sector. <clears throat> ah, <laughs> ah, that's not so good. Um, C, opportunity for citizens to recast their relationship with the state. Hmm. So some, some, some hands up there. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, that, that is interesting. It's always good to see perceptions in terms of what people think of these things. And, I mean, for us, when I go back to 2010 again, if I, if I can quote the Prime Minister, I'll be the third speaker who has... Um, in 2010, when the Prime Minister launched the Briggs Society, he said, we will want to do everything we can to help what used to be called, rather condescendingly, the third sector. But I believe is the first sector, the excellent charities, voluntary organisations and social enterprises that do m so much for our country. So often these first sector organisations have the right answers to the problems that we face in our country. So, certainly, 
the Prime Minister is going with, I think, more opportunities for charitable sector, B. <laughs> and, um, and I'll tell you how it feels from our end. I mean, actually, it's changing how our charities are working. There is a, a huge shift in the way money is um, looked at in terms of our, our charities. It's causing a big cultural shift because actually a lot of our charities are thinking about new models for delivering what they do, and that's quite scary. Um, if I go back again to 2010, we did a survey with our charities and 70% of them found that they were cutting their services. If I look at the 2011 report from the Education Select Committee, um, which found that, twin, that cuts were disproportionately affecting young people um, in, in local areas, they found that local authorities were cutting between 20 to 100% of youth services. So quite vast and quite varied in its range, and that was what the Select Committee was worried about. Um, the Young Foundation, who we commissioned at NICFIS to do a report on how, earned how levels of earned income are changing for charities over the last year, found that £110 million had been lost last year from charities in terms of how they could earn income. Over NCVO um, did a report a while ago which found that over the last 10 years, over half of the charitable sector's earned income had come from local authorities. So. Uh, in, when we're talking about opportunities for the charitable sector, in terms of the funding situation, it's very difficult. And that brings me back to what I was saying about the radical shift in how public services are being delivered and thought about. Because in this climate, if we want to carry on meeting demand, and it is increasing from young people um, who are finding themselves experiencing the highest ever level of unemployment um, in recent history, we're seeing also some of those that are in families seeing a decline in living standards and an increase in child poverty. They really have to think differently. We have to think differently about how we serve um, our constituents. So we're thinking about social investment more. We are trying to get a bit more capacity in the sector. We're trying to um, have conversations about integrated working between the statutory and the non-statutory sector. And I think that's still part of big society that's yet to evolve. Um, what are those partnerships going to look like locally when we all have a lot less? Um, so those are just my thoughts on the agenda. And um, again, I just want to give my congratulations to um, colleagues for pulling off this publication. You know, it's been swift and it's, um, it's hopefully going to cause some really interesting debate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming. Um, I'm going to take a step back and look at the broader picture and ask you to think about how these policies are seen from a global perspective and how they perhaps can be thought about from that international perspective. Um, my work, um, which is up until now really focused on um, transition countries, looked at, especially in my chapter in this book, looked at how shock therapy policies implemented in the early 1990s led to what some have called um, cutting too far too fast. In this context, in the Soviet, former Soviet context, these policies led to curtailed public spending, vast inequality, poverty, which has now become endemic, and huge gaps in provision. And it affected the populations throughout these countries, and they are still recovering. So I think when we think about austerity cuts, it's important to think about that this is not the first time these policies are being implemented. And it's important to look at international experience and ask what can we learn. 
But more importantly, we have to be aware that people are looking across the world at what happens in the UK. I'll give you one example. From Australia, recently, Philip Blonde, the guru of big society policies, had a big trip to Australia where he was selling these ideas and appearing on television and, uh, and radio shows. And it was very important to see how these ideas were being received because, again, looking at between the left and the right spectrum, some, some people were embracing these ideas, or, or these are very good, and others were thinking about what impact will it have in our country. So I think it's important to have this international perspective. And what I'm going to do is think about four dimensions that have more global scope. So first of all, we have to recognize that big society policies are neoliberal policies. By that I mean, by neoliberalism I mean, it's a triadic combination of deregulation, privatization, and the withdrawal of the state from welfare provision, which is this rollback of the state and um, the shift towards non-governmental and private sector provision. Now this has been critiqued for the impact that it's had in developing countries, but I think we need to look at what's happening in this country. And to also go back to what Ralph was saying about the role of the state, while the state is rolling back on public spending, it's increasing its powers in other areas, for instance, in surveillance and policing. So it's not you know, one aspect where the state is disappearing, but it's becoming a different type of state. And I think that is quite important to recognize and think about. So since 2010, the big society changes that have come about, or the changes that have been implemented by the coalition government, have been accompanied by 81 billion pounds reduction in public spending. We've seen massive cuts in local government spending, losses in pu public sector jobs, and if we look at the charitable sector, in last year alone, in 2011, there were over 70,000 job cuts. So this is a huge impact. And when we look at neoliberal policies, there is this tendency to valorize the individual and to talk about individual responsibility and critique the state, which is bureaucratic and bloated and full of red tape. And it's very nice to think about heroic individuals. And this key actor in the paradigm is the enterprising individual, the social entrepreneur. And of course, this social entrepreneur is the individual who heroically identifies the problems facing society. And instead of waiting for that lazy government minister, he or she addresses these problems. Well, this sounds all very nice. But of course, we're assuming that everyone in society has access to the knowledge, the capacity, the resources, the social capital, in fact, to be responsible for themselves, let alone to identify problems and solve them on behalf of their communities. As David Harvey has written, this is either an innocent utopian projection or a deliberate obfuscation of existing social and economic processes. So I think we have to be cognizant that not every community, it's, you know, there's Hackney and there's Tunbridge Wells and there's a huge gap between them and this, is, this inequality has to be recognized. And if we think about social capital, what we are recognizing is there is this talk of social capital but what we find within communities is mostly bonding, internal-looking social capital, not what my colleague and co-editor Simon has talked about as linking social capital, which is essential to um, dealing with issues of inequality. So not to um, deny that NGOs in developing and transition countries play a very important role in providing key services. In fact, in some countries, they are the only service provider. I think we cannot neglect the fact that what NGOs do is geographically fragmented. It's not universal provision. It's the notorious 
postcode lottery, depends on where you live, what services you get. Second of all, they are not sustainable. How can we depend year after year if it's not coming from a um, stable source of funding? And furthermore, there is no concrete evidence that it's cheaper, that it's better, or that it's more efficient. I think, so if we're talking about evidence-based policy making, the evidence that these big society policies will lead to greater access, more efficiency, greater effectiveness and satisfaction are not yet borne out by existing research. My second point is there is this issue of accountability and responsibility. For all this talk about individual responsibility, one has to ask, well, what is the responsibility of the state towards its citizens? Because while countries across the globe are working towards the Millennium Development Goal targets of 2015, which is all about rights-based development, what we see, in fact, in certain policy areas is a shift farther and farther away from rights-based approaches towards Victorian-era models of charity and the deserving poor. So I think we have to ask both of those questions about rights and responsibility and accountability. My third point is about gender. Because again and again, international experience has shown that women tend to be worse off than men. This is demonstrated by research across the globe, most recently by Greece, in fact, where austerity cuts were shown to be affecting women worse than men. Although I think that nobody wants to be the winner in that race. And moreover, it's the issue that women tend to become hit by the double or triple burden by working or, or having ending up with doing unpaid care. And finally, my last point um, returns to the issue of civil society and participation. We had two very interesting chapters in the second section of the book um, by Liz Richardson and also Nick Ockenden, uh, Matthew Hill, and Joanna Stewart, who looked at levels of volunteering. And they also looked at um, the chapter by Richardson looked at the government's agenda around nudge. And can we nudge people to become more participate, um, you know, more to participate more and to give more of their time? And my research has looked at democracy promotion and civil society building in the former Soviet states, and it's been a critique of top-down efforts to promote civic activism. In fact, I've critiqued it, calling it "you cannot genetically engineer civil society." So if we take a tomato and we give it a lot of, you know, hormones, it's going to grow. And if you give a third sector, um, as they did in former Soviet countries, lots of grants, you will have, for instance, in Armenia, we went in 1994 from 44 NGOs. In 1996, we had over 1,600. Did everyone become you know, civically active overnight? No, it was because the US government opened up the NGO Resource and Training Center and said, here's grants, everybody who wants some. And so basically, we ended up having this huge exponential growth. So I think the point that I'm trying to make is that we have to think about these as organic processes that come from the bottom up. And just because someone says, become volunteers, it's not going to happen. And in fact, people who want to volunteer already do volunteer. So what's going to change them from wanting to volunteer for their local football club to, to going to run their libraries? So I think it's important questions. Thank you. <clears throat> So finally, to wrap up, I'd like to say, um, for all this rhetoric of increasing participation, uh, in fact, as we've seen, the charities, charitable sector has been cut and it has been affected. And many called 2011 one of the worst years um, to, to have hit the sector in terms of how they were affected. 
So again, I want to thank everyone, and particularly I, I'd like to give a thank to the Department of Social Policy and Stickard for helping fund this event, and to uh, my colleague Maria Schlegel for all her work in organizing. Thank you very much. And uh, final brief words from Bertrand Gillis. Thanks, Nick, and I will be very brief because I know that you're probably all dying to start discussing and uh, debating some of this stuff. Um, so it's fallen to me to make a few concluding points, and I will do so uh, fairly briefly, I think. Um, seems to me that, that regardless of whether or not the big society idea sustains or continues or whether it dies away, the engagement that's been made by the authors of this book will have lasting value. It seems to me that what the book does in many ways is it throws light on, I think, something that we should all be thinking more about in the social sciences but also out in the real world, which is the way that policy operates, the way that policy processes work, the politics Hello. of policy discourses. Hello? Um, Big brother. Yeah. Um, you know, the way the policy process works in terms of the way that new, new policy ideas are generated, the way that policy ideas are enacted and mobilized, What's what the anthropologist Janine Waddell calls uh, policies enabling discourses, mobilizing metaphors, and underlying ideologies. In other words, you know, policy doesn't really operate on the basis of evidence, no matter how much we might like to talk about that and we might like to wish that it did. It works on the basis of a whole range of other factors which are as important, often more important. So what we learn about the big society in relation to policy, I think, is the way that a, you know, a sort of apparently um, a simple... Uh, but vague narrative has been constructed in order to try to mobilize resources and people for change. But it's, but it's a narrative with enough ambiguity to make it difficult to contest. And we find that beneath the veneer of a cozy, people-centered approach, there's an opportunistic and very damaging ideological agenda which is about rolling back the state, as we've heard from my co-panelists. And so the other problem with the big society is that it's ahistorical. And the book, I think, argues in many of the chapters that this is one of the reasons why it doesn't provide the basis for a coherent program of change. So I think one of the values of the book as well is this idea that we need historians to engage with the worlds of policy. It's incredibly important because the world of policy, uh, policy makers, you know, policy implementers, all tend to live in a very sort of ahistorical, uh, perpetual present. They're always talking about the present and they might also talk a bit about the future, but no one ever talks, you know, uh, sorry, no one ever talks about the past. No one ever looks back and looks at how you know, ideas are not new, how they worked previously. And so I think that's really important. It challenges the short memories you know, that people have. So I think now we're in a position where the big society idea is fragmenting. 
in different ways, maybe three ways. It's fragmenting partly because of this appeal to an idealized and unreal past. It's fragmenting because the ideological and the practical contradictions of cuts, of expenditure cuts, are becoming more and more apparent. And the role of the big society as political rhetoric is, I think, made more and more visible. And then finally, I think it's fragmenting because, as Amine was just sort of talking about, the international experience, if one looks back in the post-Cold War world in transitional countries, if one looks at the long experience of trying to build civil society and citizenship in developing countries, we learn that there's very little evidence that these attempts to build civil society or speed up the self-organizing logic of citizens, that it works. It often tends to be flawed. It often tends to be ineffective. And this is particularly true in the context of austerity cuts. So final point, I think it's too early to say what will become of the big society idea. But in the book, we hope that we've started exploring this. Thank you. Well, now, over to you. Um, I am to remind you that this is a question and answer session, so don't make speeches, ask questions. And uh, as soon as I see anyone's hand up, um, yes, over on the right-hand side there, wait till the microphones reach you, and then the floor is yours. Hi, um, thanks for a really interesting talk. Um, I just wanted to ask, you guys spoke quite a lot about the roles and responsibilities of lots of different people of um, you know, the government, individuals, communities, the private sector, the public sector, and so on. But um, I was wondering what you think your roles and responsibilities are in realizing the big society dream. <laughs> well, um, yeah, well, I, I, as a founder of history and policy, as an academic, I think that historians have spent far too long um, talking only to themselves and scoffing at the, the present and the foibles of politics and policy. And so my own responsibility as a citizen is to try to um, bring historical knowledge uh, to the attention of a much wider audience, particularly a public policy audience who have so much influence, and to uh, ensure that public policy is not continually enacted in this perpetual present um, that David mentioned, but has uh, some understanding of where it's coming from, as, as well as where it thinks it's going to. Um, so I think that would be where I would... That's my little piece of big society. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yes, in the front here. Uh, thank you for all the um, speeches up there. It, it seems slightly ironic that we're having this debate about big society and there's a book about it when David Cameron hasn't mentioned it for months and the, the guru who invented it has fled the country. Um, and I just wonder, really, does it still exist? Is it not dead? And is it just going to be swept under the carpet and never mentioned again like some embarrassing relative? Actually, it was mentioned on the day of the Queen's Jubilee because when David Cameron had invited youngsters to have a picnic at Downing Street, he said, this is the big society. So we forgot to mention that having a picnic is also a big society. So, but again, I think I, I want to go back to Ralph's point. What is big society is still a question that anyone keeps, you know, keep, we, we dealt with it in the book and I think it's still something that you ask. 
Anyone else, Ralph? I, I don't, I mean, I think we'll probably hear less of it. Um, I, but I don't think the content in it will disappear. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think part of the problem with, um, with the government's failure to define it is that, um, you know, they, they did stuff that they could label big society, but they also missed opportunities to do all the things that they, um, that I think is at the heart of it. Um, and so I think we'll continue to get that. They'll continue to do stuff that you could um, reasonably call big society, but they won't, they'll miss opportunities and won't call it big society so much. David? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think the, um, the interesting thing is that, you know, whether or not the idea is still talked about, the issues are still very, very real, and they will continue to be real for the foreseeable future. They're about states and citizens and markets and, you know, rights and, and services, and, and we have to carry on having that conversation. And I, I think that as, as academics and activists and, and um, you know, the various identities that we all have as authors of the book, I think it's our responsibility to keep this idea in the public imagination and to hold people accountable to these policy buzzwords and to try and tease out the contradictions and the, you know, the issues that lie behind them. So, I mean, I personally feel very angry about the way these words come and go and, you know, last yeah, a few years and then suddenly we're on to something else as if, you know, there's something new. So, you know, I think it's a good question and, and it's uh, something that we hope, you know, the book can, can sort of create more accountability around that and more debate. Thank you. I've got two in the middle there. We'll take them in succession. Gentleman on the right-hand side of the pair. On this issue of missed opportunities, I would like to suggest that um, the sort of selling off of Northern Rock to, to Branson was actually a real opportunity that was missed because that whole organisation could have been transformed and could have started the basis of some sort of financial structure for the community sector. Thank you. And your neighbour, I think? Uh, yes. There. Um, <coughs> yeah, I wanted to pick up um, David's point and when you were giving your uh, talk, really, which I thought gave the game away. Um, if, if, um, if evidence is not the basis of policy, and the point of a book like this is to present evidence, which is presumably intended to influence policy, but if you say, well, it's not going to, then um, what would you say are the proper means for opposing and resisting deregulation, privatisation, and rollback of the state? Thank you for that. And uh, the first one, the Northern Rock and Missed Opportunity, who would like to attempt that one? Simon? Um, no, I don't. I'm, I'm afraid I don't know much about that. I mean, yeah. well, I mean so again, I don't know about the specifics, but I think um, the point is, I, I think it's quite interesting to compare the big society agenda to the government's other kind of big defining agenda of reducing the deficit. And with reducing the deficit, Every department, every bit of the public sector knows what it is they have to do, uh, and they and it they know it's a priority, and they will do it. And that is just not true of the big society agenda. So, departments, when they survey all of what they have on this mm. week, they will not be thinking, how do we ensure that when we go about this, we um, we we do it in such a way as to empower citizens and communities 
and um, encourage greater social responsibility. And so they do miss opportunities. And I think that is one of the costs of the failure to define it. I think the second question was pretty clearly aimed at David. I'm afraid so, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the point that I think I'd like to make is that I'm arguing that, that the idea of evidence-based policymaking is a smokescreen that has become used recently and that the it actually obscures ideas about evidence and it narrows the definitions of what evidence actually is. It's a very narrow view of evidence. So I would argue that, that we, need to, we need to continue to put um, as many different kinds of evidence. We need to open that up. So evidence is not just a, you know, a randomized control trial or something. It's a whole you know, it's a set of arguments. It's it's uh, it's you know people's people's personal histories. It's a it's a whole range of different kinds of things. How we organise to challenge um, neoliberal orthodoxy as well. There's a there's a whole range of ways. Um, you know, but you know we can't pretend that this is a you know this is a straightforward thing. You know, we have to organise. Uh, we have to argue, uh, and we have to use our you know, our democratic rights to, you know, vote in a decent government. Thank you. Uh, yes, one, two, three, in that order. Gentleman in the middle in the summer jacket. Thank you. I'm uh, as cynical of the big society brand as, as anyone on the stage, which is partly why I too have written a new book in the field and it's slightly cheaper than they... <laughs> uh, <coughs> But uh, nevertheless, we can't claim that the last 60 years of ever-increasing uh, centralised delivery of, uh, of policies has, has got rid of, uh, of, of an underclass, uh, of, of many people who miss out on the provision of services that they need or indeed of dysfunctional communities. Um, I think one of the most interesting things and positive things that's happening at the moment is the way councils are increasingly looking, uh, particularly through the Cooperative Councils Network, to source services from within communities uh, and, in, and find ways of helping uh, the third sector develop the capacity to do that. Uh, is that something which the panel are aware of and would they agree with me that it is a positive uh, uh, out of this morass? Thank you. Um, I had one in the middle here. <coughs> yes? Hi. Um, my question is, irrespective of cuts, do you think that the devolution of power to local authorities doesn't disadvantage poorer communities? Thank you. And in the front. Um, my question is kind of linked to both of those really things. Um, I, I've worked in a neighbourhood management programme and one of the things that we were trying to achieve for the local community was a community, were community assets which made third sector organisations self-sustaining. Now at the moment because all the local authorities have to kind of be divesting <laughs> yeah. themselves of community assets as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, without actually making sure that the organisations that they're divesting them to have got a sustainability plan in place and at the same time all the local authorities have had to kind of cut their own staff teams so they no longer have the skills in which to kind of commission properly, properly and kind of make sure that the organisations they're divesting social community assets to properly. I mean, it's just a vicious circle, really. So big society, in principle, great stuff. That's what I've worked in, in open management. But it can't work at the moment because it's against the cuts agenda. It's completely, it just, just isn't, can't work. Thank you, all three. Yes, Armenia wants to come in. Um, I want to say to the, I think, all three questions is that 
I agree. Localization is is not a bad thing. I think you know centralization has its own problems. The problem is is this inherent contradiction which the lady in the front was mentioning, that you talk about localization and then you cut the budgets of local authorities, and so it becomes a very difficult act to, to, to you know to, to to implement localization when you have no money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I would say that very much to the point that the. The historical material that I'm familiar with does indicate that local responsibility, local discretion, local sensitivity, etc., is only really effective when it's got significant resources and discretion and uh, power at its at its disposal. And I think that you know one of the key things in history was that for hundreds of years is that the real wealth holders in society in the past were very much in the system, in full, in full view of everybody. Their property was taxed very progressively under the poor law for centuries. Uh, again, in the late 19th century, the municipal period, uh, it was quite clear to everybody that the wealthy in the community were in with the whole thing and they were very much um, active so that um, a society in which we've be- the society we've become now, in which uh, the wealth elites just evacuate the difficult areas and even uh, try to try their very best, it's a great game for them to try to pay as little as possible of their wealth into the community, um, is a really a very difficult one for uh, the sorts of ideals that are there in big society to function at all well, particularly in uh, in poorer communities. So the government would need, I think, to really seriously think about how to invigorate local communities with much more resources at their disposal, and that would require thinking very carefully about how to get the wealth elites to contribute. And that probably means doing it on some kind of a regional basis because the the wealth elites tend to be really quite concentrated in our society in certain areas, which means that whole regions and whole areas will get very little out of them unless one can can uh, you know, devise some fi- fiscal and financial mechanisms to extract that wealth from them. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of responding to all three, I think there's a, a few points that cut across the questions. Um, coordination is so important with all of this. So well, if we go back to missed opportunities, somebody was talking about, I think, David, you were talking about missed opportunities earlier, and some of the stuff that gets missed with big society. And if we think about the assets that you're talking about, there are some gems there in some of the assets that local authorities will put out um, to tender, but there's also some real clangers. Um, and so, so that's something that can be got around through good coordination, good information management, um, good um, kind of partnerships locally. So I think for me, um, and the same is true of kind of um, empowering local communities and looking into some of those ideas around cooperative councils and how services can be delivered differently, I would bang the drum for infrastructure there um, in terms of brokering relationships with statutory and non-statutory providers, but the pace of change is what I think risks some of those opportunities being missed. I think we just have time to squeeze in one last round of questions. Uh, I have one, two, three. Um, we've all noticed that like, talk of the big society has decreased over the past year. Do we think this was a result of the summer riots and now suddenly we've had the jubilee, a time of national unity, it's suddenly coming back to the forefront as a way to celebrate it, whereas when it all went horribly wrong, we, everyone distanced themselves from it very quickly? Right, thank you. Um, 
Very quickly, I think. Uh... Very quickly. I mean, Summer Riot's huge focus on young people. I don't think that that would bring it back. But what, what it did do is get people thinking about how we treat young people's relationship with society, which might be some of the underlying stuff. Thanks for that. Had someone in the middle and up far on the right. Um, I've been to a couple of these before and I found this one um, interesting, but there was one word that I seem to miss. Maybe it has been used or maybe accountability. It's a society accountability. When, what, I'm, what I mean is, I mean, if you go and you look at um, any organisation that is supplying a service uh, in the voluntary sector, I think what we need to do is we need to go and look at the impact that the money which is given to the um, chief executives and all that, it doesn't, doesn't quite balance out. I mean, when you've got chief executive of a charity telling a, char telling, uh, a volunteer, right, that's been with the company for 20 years and has given a hell of a lot of time to go and to help develop that, and then turn around and say, well, I'm sorry, but you don't actually fit in anymore. I think that's very sad, and I think that is something that needs to be challenged, especially by you people up there. You're the ones to set the policy. We're, 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 we're just the people that carry it out. And I think you need to go and have accountability. Every educational... I mean, I've looked at all, all what you all do, and I'll tell you what, good on you. I like it. But please do go and challenge these conceptions in society that we need all this, because basically... There used to be a thing called civic pride years ago. That was where you'd done something, not for the, to go and get, get well paid for or anything like that. You'd done it for the benefit of the whole community. And it was done. There was no great lights, lights up in Trafalgar Square or anything like that. And I think myself, we all, we all need to look back and see where civic pride has gone to because by God we need it back very badly if we're going to go and have, have, have a, be a decent society today. Thank you very much. Well, so uh, we represent uh, Charity Chief Exec, so I better answer some of that. Uh, I mean, I think, um, so I suppose the first things to say is um, that actually charity chief execs are relatively less well paid than in the public and private sector and and obviously part of part of why they do their jobs is passion for what they do but that said you know a lot of these people are running organizations which might operate over many many countries uh, employing hundreds if not thousands of staff as well as volunteers and managing multi-million pound budgets and doing some really serious um, stuff in terms of the people that rely on it, and you want you want them to be run well, and uh, we might wish it was otherwise, but you cannot rely simply on people having a passion to to do that to run that kind of operation. You obviously do also have to pay them um, properly. Now, but I do agree with you. There needs to be accountability, as, as in a lot of this. Um, and, and so it should be transparent and um, it should be free for us all to agree or disagree whether they're being paid the right amount. And I think um, the charity sector does need to catch up in terms of um, being transparent and uh, accountable um, to, to everyone that they um, interact with. And that is, that is something that we um, care a lot about and are 
trying to address. Thank you for that. Would, the last one, I'm afraid. Can oh, I add, Simon, add on accountability that, of course, this is the, the great importance of having a mix of statutory public services and charities in any society. The whole point about a charity is it is ultimately volunteers and volunteering that's involved. And if, from the point of view of an individual, they are not particularly well served by this charity, there is no real recourse. These are ultimately volunteers. The whole point about statutory They're public not services... Just volunteers. No, I mean from, the, from this particular point of view of this argument. The whole point about statutory public services is that you do have recourse mm -hmm. as an individual. You have a personal right of recourse mm -hmm. in law. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why these public services are vital mm -hmm. for laying the baseline for a civic society, for um, allowing, ch for permitting charity to do more creative, more innovative and different things. And any society that starts to cut into its public services in order to try and have civic society do, do it for it is, is, is in going in a very, very dangerous direction. Thank you. And the last question over there. Sorry, just on the point that you were making, isn't the essential difference between a charity and a public service that you one's democratic? And that's, that's the ultimate accountability, isn't it? That you vote for who's in power and you don't vote for charity so they can... But the point that I wanted to make was I just wondered about this this connection between the rolling back of state services and the eruption of volunteering to fill that gap. And I wonder, I work in education and my experience has been that when services are being rolled back, what's actually stepping into that space is increasing commodification of, of people, things that people previously would have given in a voluntary capacity like sort of consulting with other schools or sort of sharing of resources are now things that are being commodified and so I wonder if that's something that in the book you talk about that that this this link is not the link between rolling back services and those services being taken up by volunteer organisations isn't isn't a necessary link I'm getting a lot of nods on the platform um, Daniel, Daniel Weinbrand's uh, chapter on the fate of the friendly societies and their ethic of conviviality, as he put it, uh, in the interwar when they're co-opted to deliver um, insurance, statutory insurance services by the state, it talks about exactly this kind of corrosion of their morale and of their way of operating. Um, so there's a, a nice case study in the book which you'd probably be interested to read. But I think I, I, want, I just want to agree that I think what we are witnessing is an increasing commodification of these relations and also the language that we see, social entrepreneurs, social enterprise, venture philanthropy, all of this is indicative of the way things are going and it is changing the nature of relations between the different actors. Anyone else? No? All agreed? It's so tempting. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Go on, no, I mean, I was just going to say that um, it seems to be one of the contradictions that exists is precisely the point that you're making, which is that it's never clear when market logics are supposed to fill that gap mm -hmm. and when a kind of moral economy of citizenship mm -hmm. and altruism and, um, you know, all those kind of values are supposed to fill it because they're very different things. And, you know, as Amine says, we, we do have this sort of hybrid language now around, you know, social enterprise and all these things. And I, I'm never clear, you know, what that means. Because it's a, 
you know, there are these fundamental differences which are being brought together in ambiguous and I think often unhelpful ways. Yeah. Well, that With, with which I'm afraid I must draw conclusions, to, uh, proceedings to a conclusion. May I thank you all for coming and for taking part in a robust discussion. I think Armenia wants to say something. Thank everyone <laughs> I want to thank all the contributors from the platform for their very substantial contributions to the day. Thank you all very much. have to announce that the book, The Big Society Debate, <laughs> A New Agenda for Social Welfare, is on sale outside. And we're giving everyone a glass of wine upstairs. A glass of wine upstairs <laughs> and a signing session by the authors. And I, I would also like to add my personal thanks to Fiona Holland at History and Policy for a lot of support in this event and uh, in general for the book. Thank, Thank you. you.